0: So uh, we introduced this book and we went through chapter one last week. We're going to be looking at chapter two, verses one through 17 uh, today. Uh, But what we saw is that uh, the apostle John, who wrote the book of uh, John and first and second, third John, he is the writer of the book of Revelation. He wrote it while he was exiled uh, on the island of Patmos. He was sent there to hard labor uh, because he would not acknowledge the, uh, the emperor as Lord. He was a faithful witness. And so he's sent, he's exiled out. This is around 95, 96 AD. And, and as he's there, an angel of the Lord appears to him and he is told uh, to what to write. And He's essentially told to write this this letter to these specific seven churches. Okay, now, uh, as as we think about this interaction he has, the first thing that we need to know is the promises in chapter one are so important for us to understand and remember today. And the first one is uh, the book introduces itself as the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, so the book of Revelation is essentially God uh, pulling back the curtain and giving us a view of what is happening and what is to come. But we cannot lose sight that ultimately it all points back to Jesus. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, so uh, and, and, and to even more so affirm that all of a sudden, uh, John, uh, as he's caught up, in this uh, incredible encounter on uh, a Sunday as he's worshiping he's he's literally brought into the presence of Jesus the glorified Jesus and he's having this interaction with Jesus amazing and and so we we see Jesus in this beautiful glorified state and we and we see Jesus uh, as he's holding the seven stars and he's amongst the seven lampstands and when we see that imagery the seven stars are the angels that represent the different churches and the lampstands are the different churches and so we see that Jesus is one he's holding on to his church he's in control of his church and then second he is amongst his church. So he's involved. He's a part of it. He knows uh, what's going on. He's not disconnected. And so as we pick up chapter, as we go into chapter two and three, and we start chapter two today, John is now going to address these seven churches that he greeted in the first chapter. Now, once again, these are seven uh, historical churches that are, that are located in Asia Minor, uh, which is modern day Turkey. And that's towards the end of the first century AD. And these churches are all positioned in and around Ephesus, which was a major city in the province of Asia. Now, um, in the messages to these seven churches that we're gonna look at, the Lord uh, essentially gives each of them their own X-ray. Okay. Now, um, I got a call about, uh, I guess, about a week and a half ago, and it was a call you don't want to get as a parent. It's the school, and they're calling. They're trying to get a hold of us, and uh, they ended up getting a hold of my wife. Uh, I was outside, and and she's like, "School called. You need to go get Bronx. Bronx is our middle." Uh, son. And, uh, and I was like, why? And, and she's like, he broke his arm. And I said, did you ask them how they know he broke his arm? And she goes, yes. And they said, it's broken. Uh, and, 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 so, and so, you know, uh, drive over to the school, go get him. And, uh, and immediately when I saw him, I went, oh my goodness, get in the car. And, and we went to the ER. And as, when we went to the ER, uh, and got in, uh, one of the first things they do is get an x-ray, right? You want to see what really happened, okay? And so they did multiple x-rays to, to figure out what was going on, what was the the state of his arm, what was going on inside. And and a lot of times when you have a break, uh, you can't tell from the outside. You can't see, uh, you know, a a broken bone a lot. Now you can see his, but uh, a lot of them you can't see. and, And so they need to be able to look and see what's actually going on on the inside. What Jesus is going to do for each of these seven churches is he's going to give them a, a, a picture, a reality check of what's going on in their churches what's what's actually happening, what's there and what's not there and this is actually meant to encourage it's it's an act of love that is doing this okay and and, and so all the churches are going to benefit from this. But then what we also see written in chapter two, which is encouraging for us today uh, and anybody that's at any of these churches is the words, he that hath an ear, it says, let him hear. Okay, so anybody who has an ear needs to listen in on this right? So, so just because, hey, it's not your church or that's not my church, that doesn't mean I don't listen. Uh, in fact, for some of us today, uh, you may, as I talk about one of the churches, you may go, ah, oh, that doesn't really connect with me. But then I talk about another one. And although this ecclesia church may not be the church of Ephesus, you go, that's me. That's what's going on in my heart. That's my situation. And so this is an invitation for us, not only as a church for us to go, man, is this happening here? But also for each of us individually to ask, is this going on in my heart? And so let's start. In chapter 2, let's look at verses 1 through 7. Okay, now, if you have a red letter edition, you will notice the letters are red. Why are the letters red? There we go. Some of you are like, I have no idea. I didn't even know it was red, so I just looked at it. It is red, but... um, That's Jesus's words. Okay. It's very important. These are Jesus's words. It says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Okay, so the first of these churches to be addressed is the church at Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a city of great significance in the first century, politically, commercially, and religiously. Politically, it was the capital of Asia, commercially, uh, it's, it's where all these great highways uh, converged. There was also at that time a major seaport. So lots was happening. Lots of information was coming in and through and out of uh, Ephesus. Uh, religiously, it was uh, the, the city was the center of worship for the fertility goddess Diana or Artemis. And so there's thousands in the city of of priests and priestesses who served at this temple, many as religious prostitutes. But we see um, Ephesus, very, very popular, even book in the Bible, right? Ephesians, which is written to the church at Ephesus. And so Paul, uh, along with Aquila and Priscilla, they evangelized in the city of Ephesus and they started the church, okay? Now, when you look at the church at Ephesus, one of the things that just stands out is who they've had as leaders. Okay, so they've had, they've had Paul, Timothy, and John. Not a bad lineup. Hey, who's your pastor? Paul. What now? Right? I mean, Paul's your pastor, right? And Timothy... Not bad. And and then you've got John, right? So this is a church with an incredible heritage, right? Uh, A a church that you look back on and go, if there's any church that should have it all together, it is this church. Uh, And yet what we know, and we even see in our culture uh, and the churches around our country, just because you've had, past tense, great leaders, spiritually godly leaders, it doesn't mean you're gonna continue to have that. And you can't live off of that. And and, and so we're reminded once again how Jesus holds the seven stars. He walks among the seven lampstands. And so Jesus uh, is in complete control. And he is in and amongst what is going on in this church. He's very aware. Now, this does two things, right? When we know this, when we understand this, even about our own church. One is for me, it just gives me this assurance, right? Right? That, that, I, that there's not this disconnected God uh, that doesn't really understand or know. No, uh, I have assurance that he knows, he sees, he understands what's happening in our challenges. But then there's also a, another piece to that, right? It's twofold. There's also a great amount of accountability that comes with that, right? I, I, I connect that to when uh, my dad would have a day off. Right? When my dad would have a day off, it was awesome because I get to play with dad, uh, which I loved. He was there and all that. We could throw the ball or whatever. Uh, But also, if dad was there, the accountability in the house went way up. My brothers and I, there were certain things that we go, okay, we can't do that today. Right? So it raised the level of accountability. And so it's twofold, right? And so uh, the, the church uh, at Ephesus, he, he, he explains to them what's going on. And, and, and what we see first is that this church was, was active, it was busy, and it was doing many, many good things. Okay, we can't lose sight of that. In fact, there's three things specifically that are recognized and commended by Jesus. Their works, their labor, and their endurance. Okay, so this is a community of Jesus followers that was busy for the Lord. They were were a serving church. We go, man, that church serves well. They were taking care of their people. They were taking care of the the, the community. Uh, they, They were serving for the name of Christ. In fact, it says they toiled, they worked to the point of exhaustion and they endured We've been talking about endurance in the book of Revelation. I mean, that's a huge theme. is how do we endure? This was a church that endured well in a society that was against them. We also read how they didn't tolerate evil. They didn't allow it. Uh, they would test if someone said, oh, I'm an apostle. They would test them. They would test the spirit. And it says they would even prove them to be liars. And so holiness, purity mattered to this Church Scripture, not the culture, guided their behavior. Jesus says of the Ephesians, you also possess endurance and have tolerated many things because of my name and have not grown weary. See, life was not easy for them. And the Lord acknowledged that incredible dedication that they had towards him. They're also commended because they hate the word hate is there. They hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. Now, what's interesting here is for many of us, we think of Jesus as this meek, mild-tempered uh, savior who's just love, 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 right? But then all of a sudden in scripture, we're confronted with something like this, where Jesus says there's actually something here he hates. Okay, and whenever Jesus is gonna say that, we should pay attention, right? Now, exactly who these Nicolaitans uh, were We cannot be sure, and I don't want to bore you with all the assumptions, okay? They could have come from uh, Nicholas, who came from way back when. They they could have came out of that branch. Um, But what it seems is that their message was essentially idolatry and immorality were okay, and that was at the root of their uh, spiritual practice. It's kind of anything goes, But when we think about this church as a whole, you guys, what what do we think? Man, this church looks and sounds healthy. In fact, this is a church that that I would go, man, I want to be like that church. Like I would want to go to that church. However, Jesus saw into their hearts and Jesus saw something else. He says, but I have this against you. See, this this busy, this separated, this sacrificing church had abandoned their first love. Now, they, they were still doing all of the right things, saying the right things. But at some point in the past, they'd forgotten and forsaken the right motivation that they once had. See, they didn't have a head problem. They had a heart problem. See, obedience out of duty had replaced obedience out of a love for Jesus. You guys, what we do for the Lord is very important. I don't want to limit that and, and belittle that, but so is why we do it. Now, what, what is the first love that that they'd abandoned. And it's really important for us to acknowledge and know that it's not a love that was lost. It's a love they left. What is the love that they'd abandoned? It's the fervent and passionate devotion that they had for Jesus when they first had received him. Do you remember that? For some of you that have made a decision to receive Jesus as your Lord and say, do you remember that moment? Do you remember that passion? That desire? the purity there of that pursuit, how he's the only one that mattered to you. You were amazed at the grace, at the gospel that, that was offered to you, that someone was offering you forgiveness for your past, for what you were currently doing. You were overwhelmed and, and all you thought about was him. All you thought about was, was, was how, man, God, I, I, I give you me. I'm, I'm going all in with you, God, whatever you want. And and you and, and that was it for you. And you were you were devoted to that. And, and it was a beautiful, beautiful thing. But over time, you guys, we can lose that. And this church who, who was doing so many great things, they're so busy maintaining separation from culture and be like, no, uh, we're going to test that. We're going to operate only God's way. And yet they were neglecting adoration. They were neglecting the, the, the love of God. See, labor, our, our works are not a substitute for love. Our purity, you can be the purest person in the world, physically, whatever, and still, that's not a substitute for loving Jesus. And so what we read here is, is all is not well for the church, but we're also encouraged that all is not lost. In fact, in a relationship with Jesus, it never is. We see uh, this first love that they had left, it can be restored if they, and we should ask we, uh, will follow the three instructions that Jesus gave. And the three instructions are this. They needed to remember, they needed to repent, and then to return. See, for us today and for this church, we have to remember. In fact, how it's written, it's keep on remembering. We have to remember what we have lost. You have to go back and actually look at what it was like there. And, and you go, what what have I left there? And then we have to, once we remember, we, we have to do something with that memory, right? We have to cultivate in ourselves uh, a desire to regain that love that once was. We've got to go back and evaluate and go, man, where did that love start to drift? Where did it start to fade? What was it? When you think about where you're at now, you compare that to where you were at there and you go, what is different in my life? Right? What, what are the rhythms in my life that are different now than we're there? Who are the people that are influencing my life now versus then? You look at all of it and you go, what has changed? And then we must repent. Uh, we've got to repent to Jesus. And, and repent, what it means, repentance, is to change your mind. Okay, so there's got to be a mindset shift. A shift. Uh, as, as you go into this. And I love the promise that comes with repentance in 1 John 1, 9. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What an incredible promise, right? And then third, we must return to the first works of that first love. We need to restore that original fellowship that we had that has been broken for whatever reason. Going back and restoring that space that you had with Jesus when he was all you thought and cared about. And when we think of a church, a church that loses its first love, it will lose its light no matter how doctrinally sound it is. He says, I will come. And this is not a reference to the Lord's return, but it's to a present judgment that, that he was like, I'm going to come and I'm going to deal with this. See, in these seven messages, you're going to see uh, words like overcomers or conquerors and, and who they are. And we, and we read it here. These are true believers. These are the ones who have uh, not given up on their faith. These are, these are the ones that uh, we read about. In fact, in 1 John 5, uh, 4 and 5, it says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? So, those are the overcomers. We are the overcomers, uh, the ones who have established a relationship with Jesus and are pursuing uh, him. And, and each of these seven letters to these churches in Revelation chapter two and three, it's gonna end with a promise that's drawn from the end of the book. And and though each letter is written to a specific church, each letter is for every church as well, because anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. And so what does the exalted Jesus promise to each believer in every church? It's that promise that we will be conquerors, overcomers, and then we will celebrate in paradise. Amen? Let's keep going. Verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Okay, so Smyrna is uh, 35 miles north of Ephesus. It's this proud and beautiful city, still exists today. It's just known as Ismer. Um, And politically, uh, the city was close with Rome. Now, when I talk about it's close with Rome, it means emperor worship was prevalent. Remember, the current emperor was demanding that that he be worshiped as the Lord. Okay, so this is happening in this community. And then there's also a a large and influential Jewish population in Smyrna. And what this all did was, was it created a very hostile environment for any church trying to follow Jesus. And so this is a church that's suffering, It's going through it, and it was a church that desperately needed encouragement because, as the letter states, it's going to actually get worse. And so John kicks it off by taking them back to, once again, that vision of the glorified Jesus, uh, talking about how he's the eternal God. He's the, the resurrected Lord, um, and just getting them into that encouraging mindset. And then Jesus tells his people at Smyrna I, I know your tribulation and your poverty. I know. He knows the burdens they're carrying and the opposition they're facing. He walks among the seven lampstands. Remember, he's very present. And he also knows that that they're in poverty. You guys, this church was, was, was enduring economic, physical, religious, and social opposition that you and I can't even uh, imagine. They were marked out. They were ostracized. Uh, their families, you're out. They weren't uh, hireable. People wouldn't hire them for jobs. It cost them to take a stand for Jesus. They were physically poor people. I, uh, just imagine us coming together and gathering as a church. And we're here, and we walk in, and and I mean, we're we're struggling, we're hurting, uh, we're we're literally in poverty, all of us just trying to follow Jesus, just trying to to band together to get through this season, which seems like it's never going to end. Remember, it's been like 30 years of oppression for Jesus followers. And there they are. Just imagine you're sitting there in this small room with this small church, and you're just trying to encourage each other to keep going. And every week you gather, there's someone missing. There's an empty seat. And where are they? What happened? And every week, you don't know if it's your seat that's going to be missing. You don't know what's going to happen that week with your family. You don't know if someone's going to turn you in. You don't, you don't know what the cost is going to be for denying worshiping Caesar as Lord. And so here they are. And I love how Jesus encouraged them by saying, listen, you're not poor. You're rich. You are spiritually rich. Materially, materially wise, yeah, you've got nothing, but spiritually you have everything. I'm reminded of James chapter 2, verse 5, where it says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? This, this church at Smyrna was spiritually rich. In fact, it says nothing negative about them. It says there's nothing that they're doing that needs corrected but we see something interesting here. This particular church was being attacked by uh, the Jewish population in the city. They were, they were slandered by what John vividly describes as, he says, a synagogue of Satan. Now, who were these Jews? Well, the or were they? Well, these were descendants of Abraham by physical birth, but not spiritual birth. In fact, in John 8, 44, we find words quite similar uh, that Jesus uses to these unbelieving Jews that were against him. This is what he said. He said, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of liars. Okay, so what we see here uh, is physical heritage has no standing or no bearing on spiritual standing. Right, like, 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 you can come from a great family, you can come from uh, a great church, and that doesn't mean spiritually you're right with God. And so these Jews were persecuting uh, these Jesus followers, and essentially what they were were these Jews. They were tools of the enemy. They were tools of Satan. They were under his influence. And what you need to understand and what we need to ask today is, and, 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 and think about is, if I'm not being influenced and moved by the Spirit of God, who is influencing me? Well, it's, it's me. No, there is no, like, no. You're being influenced by either the Spirit of God or the enemy. There's no, like, middle Okay? And, and, and so we need to think about that. And so these individuals, by denying Christ, by, by actually working against Christ, they're being used by the enemy to persecute. And so the enemy here is Satan. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. The devil's going to throw some of you into prison to test you. And you're going to have affliction that's going to be really difficult to go through and it's going to last for seven days or for 10 days. And that 10 days uh, it could be literal, but uh, it it also many believe it's 10 periods that it's talking about uh, of opposition and struggle. But either way, it's a limited period of time. It's defined and God is even in control of that. But then this church receives a much needed word of encouragement. Jesus reinforces the promise that was given by James in James chapter 1 verse 12 when it said blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him see because they trusted Jesus because they followed Jesus because they were obedient to Jesus in the face of insurmountable odds they were overcomers and as overcomers, they had, they had nothing to fear. He says, you're gonna receive the crown of life. That's eternal life. And he says, you're gonna overcome the second death. And you know what's far worse than physical death? Eternal death. And, and eternal death here is called the second death. In fact, in Revelation 2014, it's called the lake of fire, which is another way of describing Hell. But I love Revelation 20, verse 6, where it, because it tells us that because of Christ, that death, that second death, that eternal death, it has no power over us as Jesus' followers. In fact, in, in John 16, it says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. He says, I have overcome the world. Okay, this is the encouragement here. This is the promise. This is the thing that these Jesus followers are, they're just, they're hanging on every word that is being read uh, publicly to them. This is the eternal reward. This is the eternal uh, promise from God. And so what's your encouragement? What's my encouragement? If you're struggling right now, and and, and many of you are, and maybe even you're, you're you're hearing that it's gonna get worse. You're anticipating that stay faithful to Jesus. He's with you. He's for you. He's, he's holding everything in the palm of his hand. He's got you. And just on that other side of this suffering is incredible, eternal, everlasting glory. You can rest in him. And then in verse 12, it says, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I'll come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Okay, so John uh, next it receives a charge to write the letter to the third church, Pergamum, And and Pergamum was uh, by many called the greatest city in Asia Minor. It had all kinds of beautiful temples dedicated to all these different gods. The altar uh, to Zeus was there, which is one of the ancient wonders of the world. And so it's the city immersed in pagan religion. But it was also a city that was very, very tight with Rome. In fact, it was the official center for worship of the emperor. So people came from all over to Pergamum to worship the emperor. That's probably why it's referred to as Satan's seat. But it also could be because they had a temple that was dedicated to Esculapius, the God of healing, whose insignia was the entwined serpent on the staff. But John draws again from the vision of the glorified Christ in chapter one. And and we see the sword there, the imagery of the sword. And the sword, once again, is the word of God. And, And just like the church in Smyrna, the believers here in this church, they had suffered and were suffering persecution for their faith. Their faithful witness had resulted even in the martyr of one of their very own, Antipas, who were not sure who he was. Some believe he might have been the pastor of the church. I try not to think of that, but uh, he was one of them. We don't know anything about him other than he maintained his witness for Jesus. And the church did, in spite of incredible suffering, this church remained true to God. And Jesus says, once again, I love how he says, I know what you're going through. I know what you're going through. Some of you, can you hear that today? Jesus says, I know what you're going through. He says, I know what you're going through, and I know where you live. Okay? I know where you live. I know whose seat is in the area you live. Okay, for some of you, Jesus knows where you live. He knows where you work. He knows what you're doing. He knows your hobbies, all of that. He knows you so well, and he's in this with you. And so, so he says, I, I know what you're going through. I know where you live. And, 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 and we see that many were faithful, some even to the death, but this wasn't true of all of them, was it? See, one of the things that we go into here is we realize one of the greatest dangers to our faith uh, is not going to be persecution from the outside, is it? See, we like to look at it that way. Oh, it's persecution from the outside. But more than likely, the greatest danger to your spiritual walk, your spiritual life, and your faith in Jesus and this church's uh, relationship with Jesus is it's gonna come from the inside. What is it? It's called compromise. It's when we compromise. See, persecution often grows a church, grows people's faith. But we see compromise is this poison that wants to get into your soul, into your life, and wreck what the Spirit of God wants to do. Uh, Compromise is a poison that the enemy wants to bring into this church. And what we see with this church is the external attacks weren't working. And so Satan goes for the internal attacks. And we see a group of compromising people had infiltrated this church and Jesus hated their doctrines and their practices and the health and the vitality of this church are now at stake. What was the mindset of these people that came in? It was essentially that, that whole mantra, let's just go along to get along right? And uh, like, like what, what the church started to do through compromise is they started to do the very things that characterized the world, the very things that the world would applaud that they would be accepted for. Oh, it's no big deal. Just acknowledge Caesar a little bit. I can still worship God. Um, Oh, we you can do that. You can, you can, yeah, you can. Um, practice that on the side or morally? Yeah, yeah, that that's okay, right? You can still have God. They, they 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 were open-minded, right? They were progressive. They were they were tolerant of everything, right? And so it was so dangerous because it could be uh, all labeled under under that heading of what? This is loving, right? This is loving but we see two specific areas uh, where they were infected with this compromise. And it was their morality and their theology. Okay. Now your theology, some of you are like, I don't care about my theology. Your theology is the study of God. Kind of important. Okay. So, so theology, right theology isn't essential. <laughs> okay. So there's two ways they compromise there, their morality and their theology. And, and one of the ways we see, uh, this intertwined is some, it says, held to the teaching of Balaam. Now, Balaam's name is used here symbolically so we understand what was going on. Now, the story of Balaam, uh, for many of us, maybe who don't know, is he was this notorious Old Testament prophet who essentially was a prophet for hire, okay? Um, And and his story uh, is found in, in Numbers 22 through chapter 25. And and, and as you go into the setting, uh, this king, uh, Balak, he was fearful of the Israelites because of what they'd done to the Amorites. And he's the king of the Moabites. So he's afraid of the nation of Israel coming. And so he hires Balaam, the prophet, to curse Israel. So, so, So Balaam tries to curse Israel three times. Every time he tries to curse Israel, God turns the curse into a blessing. Okay, so that didn't work. So what is he going to do? Well, since he was unable to curse the Israelites, he decided to corrupt them by teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. What was their plan? They'd use Moabite women to lure the Israelites into the behavior of the godless world around them through sexual immorality and idolatry and guess what Balaam's plan worked. And so here the Lord is specifically alluding to that story. And he's saying that very thing is happening in the church through that philosophy, through that mindset right? And he says, this sin, man, this is instigated by the following of Balaam, this pagan food, pagan women. This, this has led to spiritual compromise, adultery on the part of all the people. The stumbling block here, it refers to this idolatry, this immorality. They were celebrating the idols in their culture. Whatever culture adopted uh, from a religious standpoint, from a moral standpoint, uh, it was okay, They attempted to serve God, but in the process allowed the cultural norms to shape both their thinking and their lifestyles. And it says some followed the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now we were introduced to them by the church of Ephesus and the Ephesian church rejected them. But we see at Pergamum here, they received them. And some are actually following uh, that teaching, which was closely related, if not identical to the teaching of Balaam. And so immorality, idolatry, these are these distinctives of these false uh, teachers and what they were essentially trying to communicate and push to the people is that doctrine doesn't really matter. uh, Behavior matters even less. And as each day would pass the distinction between the church, the community of Jesus followers and the culture, the pagan culture around them, it was becoming more and more blurred and it looked less and less different. It was rushing into the church, this compromise. See, they'd neglected the truth of Romans twelve two, where it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. They'd forgotten the warning of James 4.4 when he says, you adulterous people. And he's using adultery as an example because what is the church? It's the bride of Christ says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so we are challenged. We are pressed on not compromising our morality, our theology. You guys, when we start to bend, when we start to compromise on those things and just go along with what culture celebrates, acknowledge, it's been well said, what one generation tolerates, the next generation Um is gonna accept and what the generation accepts, the next generation celebrates. And so we cannot compromise. It will destroy one, it will destroy our witness. You guys, some of us are so caught up in being loved by people that don't want anything to do with God and we just wanna fit in, we wanna do what they do, we don't wanna stand out. You are losing your witness because people who live that lifestyle, some of you have lived it, at some point go, this doesn't work. I want something else. And if you look like them, you have no witness. Why would they listen to you? You're doing the same things. You're saying the same things. They think your belief is just like theirs. So when you say, hey, you just got to repent and turn from that, they're looking at you like, what are you drinking? What'd you smoke? What are you talking about? What are you talking about? You're just like me. And guys, the church itself, is in danger of that. You want to talk about a warning for the 21st century church? It's this. And so it doesn't only destroy our witness. We also see that it invites judgment. Judgment. God will judge us. He will judge me. He will judge our church. And so what is the cure to this compromise? It's very simple. Repent. Repent. Okay? The imperative notes, the urgency of the command. Do not delay, do it now. Repent, turn, turn in your thinking, turn in your ways or else we see a very serious response from Jesus. He says, I will come to you quickly. And then one of the worst images I can imagine in scripture, I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Guys, I can't think of a worse image in scripture than Christ fighting his beloved bride fighting his church, but, but he has to, because he loves it. He's not going to tolerate. It. He's not going to allow it. He's going to defend. And what you also need to see here that's really important is when Jesus is addressing the whole church in chapters two and three, he says you, but here he says he would fight against them. This is a group within the church that he's addressing. This is a group that needs to hear these words read. And he says the weapon of this, of his war against them would be his words. His words would win the day. And then we see a promises given to this church. If they repent and endure, he promises hidden manna. Now manna was the food uh, in the old Testament that was supernaturally supplied to the Israelites when they were wandering but we see here that Jesus is going to feed his people the spiritual food they need for eternal nourishment. He's talking about eternity. In fact, in John 6:32, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Now, the exact meaning and significance of the white stone that is given, we don't know. There's a lot of different ways you could take that, but it does overall point to this acceptance and victory in Jesus. It's his gift never to be taken away. And on the stone is written a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. And and this new name was was given as an indication of a new status. Uh, Names were significant. And and so believers receiving this name, it represented their final reward of identification and unity with Christ and his kingdom, his eternal kingdom under his sovereign authority. It marked their acceptance into God's eternal community of the redeemed. It's incredible. And that's for you and me. Are you hearing this? But the question I want to end with is this. Which church are we? Which church are we? Which church are you? Are you Ephesus? Are you doing all these great things? Do people say, man, they're, they're really godly. Man, they do, they're, they're great at this. They're so spiritual. They pray all the time. They read. Uh, they're very consistent. Uh, they're all these things. But maybe deep down you go, man, I am not doing this because of my first love original love is gone and maybe you're just going through the motions and the question I have is will you remember will you repent and will you return maybe you're Smyrna and you've just been suffering and God's maybe like man it's, it it doesn't look like it's gonna get better and what you need to hear is there is hope eternal hope to stay the course or maybe we're Pergamum we've compromised our morality things that were once wrong they're okay now our theology our thoughts to god they've shifted they've changed and they fit our culture and we need to turn today we need to repent back to him wherever you're at in this i want to encourage you he invites us to be conquerors there is an eternal hope we are conquerors through jesus amen